Well, Deuteronomy 21, we studied 21 and 22 on Wednesday night, and it was, it was not easy teaching. In fact, it was tough because so much of this section deals with laws of deterrence. And we don't understand that so much in our culture. We're not into deterrence. We don't want to keep things from happening. We want to make it as easy as possible on people once they've done these things. Laws of deterrence, which have severe consequence so that people will actually think twice before they act on these things. And Moses is preaching laws of God that are designed to convict beforehand rather than to condemn after the fact. And that's something that we need to understand in Torah law. So much of it is God saying beforehand, don't, so that he doesn't have to say afterhand, you're condemned. So we think after the fact, and people will look at Old Testament law and say, well, it's so judgmental, it's so harsh. It's harsh so that they don't do it. Sin is judged severely so that people will not act on it. Law is given by God to cause his people to pause and think through the consequences of what they are about to do before doing these things that ultimately would bring deterioration and destruction and ultimately the death of the nation and the diaspora of the people of Israel. So what I love about Torah law, as black and white and severe sometimes as it comes across, is that rather than a bleeding heart approach to justice, God offers truth. And the truth he offers and the way he offers it actually works on the human heart. Our ways don't work which is why we continue to have the problems. And this culture and every other nation of the world throughout history, we continue to have these problems because our ways don't work. His ways work. His truth impacts and affects the human heart. God knows the heart. You all know this verse, but let me read it again. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, he says, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So the Lord would rather deter sin through the conviction of the heart than destroy the sinner through the condemnation of his behavior. Deterrence before rather than destruction after. With that in mind, I left one law out to study with you all this morning. Picking up in verse 18 of Deuteronomy 21, if any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and he will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and fear. Funny story. Um, this happened to me once. I was 10 years old, talking to my dad at the table, talking back, and he immediately picked up the phone, and he called the elders of our church and took me down to the town square, and they stoned me to death. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it never happened, but you know what? This law, as far as the rabbis tell us, was never enacted in Israel. They never had to do it. It never came to this point. Now, I do remember being defiant uh, many times growing up. I remember talking back. I remember being rebellious. I remember my dad taking me to this passage to help me understand how serious rebellion against parents really was. And I also recall reading it over that night and thanking God that I was under grace and not law. But again, this was never enacted, as far as we know, as far as we understand, in Israel. No son, no daughter was ever executed for rebellion with one possible exception. But let's get a broader sense of the law. Recognizing that this is not dealing with a specific case, this is a law calling out the potential of a case, think through a couple of things with me. This is a generalization to deter such a horrible outcome. First of all, note that in verse 18, this is a son who is beyond all hope of repentance. Okay, he's called stubborn, rebellious, will not obey, will not even listen, a glutton and a drunkard. So, Probably not a 10-year-old kid. 
Probably not. <laughs> and while rebellion comes early on with the sin nature, this is obviously a law that is dealing with a grown son capable of such rebellion. So keep that in mind. We're not talking about a kid. We're talking about someone who's grown and who's rebelling and fighting back and contentious, and this is a big issue. By the way, even though this is a grown son, second thing to note, it's still the parent's responsibility to try to get through to him. So moms and dads of grown kids don't give up. You don't stop. Yes, they have to make their own choices, live their own lives, but you still have a voice. In fact, it says back there in verse 18 that when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Moms and dads are to yet chastise, even older children. Chastise, yisaru in Hebrew, which means to correct and admonish. You don't stop admonishing your kids. You don't make sin easy for them. I don't want to lose the relationship. You know what? You are mom and dad. You have a say. Chastise. With a younger child, that would include corporal punishment according to Torah law. With an older child, it's warnings, it's admonitions, it's speaking, and that remains legitimate. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul said, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. You know what that promise was? So that you, it we may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Honor your father and mother, and Torah law puts no end to that. Yes, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean you stop honoring father and mother. You honor them. And sometimes the honor, well, it runs both ways. Just because we're adults doesn't mean we have nothing to learn from our parents. And just because our kids are grown doesn't mean we no longer have a voice to speak into their lives. Here's the thing about parents of grown children. I have two still. My mother and father are still alive, doing great. My dad's 85. My mom is 80. You wouldn't know it. They outpaced me the whole time I was down in California with them. I have mom and dad, and they still know things I don't know. I'm 57, so I've got roughly 30 years, 28 years to catch up to the things my dad knows. And it's good to remember that, grown children especially, that your parents know things you don't know. And we'll always know, you'll never catch up until they pass away and then you finally get to that point and then you'll start to say, wow, they, I had no idea. Yeah, well, they did. So parents, speak into your kids' lives, even if they're 57. My dad, my mom, still speaking into my life and I welcome that. Don't give up. Third thing to realize in this is uh, in verses 19 and 20, the parents, note this, did not have the right to take the law into their own hands. So you cannot say, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. No. <laughs> you can't do that. And something about this law that sometimes people miss is the fact that God took that right out of the hands of the parents. The ancient code of of Hammurabi and later Greco-Roman laws and even Islamic Sharia law still practiced by some Muslims today say that parents have the right of the life and death of their children. It's called honor killings, that a Muslim father can kill a daughter or a son for dishonoring him. And God said to his people, no, you don't have that right. You can't just go off and kill a son, kill a daughter. If the situation is that bad, hey, I get it. Sometimes you want to kill them. <laughs> but if the situation is that bad, you go to the elders, the judges of the city. It gets out of your hands. Fourth thing to note is that verses 20 and 21 indicate that this defiance is community and even covenant threatening to Israel. This is no longer just affecting the family. This is affecting others as well. This is outside the four walls of the home. This is now affecting the town, the city, the community, and the covenant people. Not a private household issue. What God is laying into law here 
is behavior that impacts the entire community, behavior that is worthy of stoning. Verse 21 says, Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear and will fear. This is so serious that even the punishment now involves the entire community. All the men of the city must pick up stones for this execution. Why? Why, Lord, do you have to be so intense, so tough, so severe? Deterrence. That this would never happen. And again, the rabbis tell us it didn't. But listen to this word again. Verse 21, you shall remove the evil from your midst. You shall remove it. The word is a word that Moses repeats 10 times in this sermon. Deuteronomy 13 through 24 specifically. 10 times he will use this same word. Here it's translated remove. Everywhere else it is translated purge. Purge. You shall purge the evil from your midst. It's biarta in Hebrew, and it means to rid, to burn out, to completely sweep away. Purge the evil. Now, Hollywood and Blumhouse Productions, they have a different idea of the purge. If you've heard of those movies, there's a couple of them out, and I guess a third one is underway. It's a dystopian system in America in which people get 12 hours once a year to act on all sin. All sin, violence, carnage, rebellion, whatever you want to do, free, way, free reign, law is shut down, and anything that happens within those 12 hours cannot be judged. You can just do whatever, and everything runs rampant. And the idea behind the philosophy in this dystopia is to purge the system of evil. Just get it all out of the way in one fell swoop, one 12-hour period. Now, I haven't seen the movies, nor am I recommending them, but what's interesting to me is that even Hollywood acknowledges it does not work. In fact, just the opposite, the appetite of sin and rebellion increases with use. It doesn't get purged. The more you sin, the more it increases, which is why God says purge the sin. Because if you don't purge the sin, it's going to come back for more. It is insatiable. It can't get no satisfaction. Sin just can't. You know that. I know that. I head down a path of some particular sin behavior, and I do it once or twice, and I'll just do it the one time. And another opportunity is coming right behind it. Well, just a couple of times. Okay, well, I don't do that anymore. I used to love this. One of my kids would say to me, okay, it was Hayden. He would say, Dad, I don't do that anymore. Well, anymore was two days ago. You just did it two days ago. Yeah, but I don't do it anymore. And that's the thing about sin. It is insatiable. It wants more and more and more. Turning your Bibles over to the book of Proverbs. I want to read you a very interesting proverb by a prophet named Agur. How many of you know who Agur is in the Bible? Ever hear of Agur? I've got one Agurite, so that's good. Agur is a seer, a prophet and a proverbial writer, and all of Proverbs 30 is accredited to him making these declarations. Well, listen to what Agur says. Proverbs chapter 30, picking up in verse 15, it says, The leech has two daughters, give and give. And you might, in the parentheses of your Bibles, just to get this really clear, the two daughters' names are gimme, gimme. Okay, it's not give as in two generous daughters. These are two daughters who are going, gimme, gimme. That's the leech. There are three things, he goes on to say, that will not be satisfied. Four that will not say enough. This is Hebrew poetry. I remind you, Bible students, that when, when they say three things are this and four is this, the fourth is the worst, okay? If they say six things are such and such and seven are this, the seventh is the worst, or the seventh is the apex of the other six. So here there are three, three, and the fourth one is the worst. Four that will not say enough. Here they are, verse 16, Sheol. Never satisfied. People keep dying. The barren womb, never satisfied, always desiring to be filled. Earth that is never satisfied with water. Pour it out on the ground, it's going to seep in and disappear. 
And number four, fire that never says enough. And what's interesting here in Agur's poetic Hebrew phraseology is fire is the end game. Fire, you could say, is the end game of sin. It's the one that will never say enough. Matthew 18, verse 8, Jesus said, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Why? Because fire never says enough. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it for you, from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell because fire says never enough. Fire can't get no satisfaction. Fire wants to burn and burn and continue to burn. And Jesus says, you don't want to end up there. I think it's interesting that obviously Jesus is speaking euphemistically. Obviously, he's making a point Otherwise, we would all be handless, footless, and blind. But he's saying, listen, be better for you to enter life. What does he mean? After death, eternal life, the kingdom. Better to go into the real life, the life that you were created for, the life we've all been prepared for. That's the life. Better to enter that life without a hand or without an eye or without a foot than to miss life and end up in fire, which never says enough. But then Agur draws back to the beginning of rebellion. He gets to the end of rebellion with fire. And then in verse 17, here's the beginning. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Rebellion, disrespect, pick away at the eyes of of the heart. This goes for adult children as well. So think about it. Those of you who have a mom and a dad still living, adults, the way that you view, the way that you look at mother and father, rebellion and disrespect will pick away at the eyes of the heart, will affect godly vision. You want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, love and respect your parents. Yeah, but they're not even believers. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You still show love and respect. Yeah, but they did this to me. doesn't matter. Think about what we did to Jesus. They still, they may not deserve love and respect, but as a follower of Jesus, you are to give it because it will affect your vision until you're left without a hand useful for service. You're left not being able to walk in the spirit. You're left with spiritual blindness as an eternal consequence, and that's the danger of disobedience that God, back in the law, wants to avoid. Disrespect, rebellion, it's much more than a family issue. It is a community issue, but it's more than that. It's an all-Israel issue, but it's more than that. It's a relationship with God issue. This disrespect, rebellion. It's a serious matter, because if we don't learn respect, here on earth, how will we ever come to respect our Father, which art in heaven? Hallowed be his name. How will we come to trust and rely upon and, and lean away from disrespect and away from rebellion and into trust? How will we ever do that? God started us all out in a family where we would learn. And some families are more difficult to learn that than others. I acknowledge that. I get it. But we are called to learn as children that we might love our heavenly Father. Now, back in Deuteronomy 21. So go back there. That was all just the introduction. <laughs> go back to Deuteronomy 21. There are two key words that I really want us to hone in on, to focus on and think about in the midst of this law. And those two words are used both in verse 18 and in verse 20. And the words are stubbornness or stubborn and rebellion or rebellious. Stubborn and rebellious, stubbornness and rebellion. And you might note this, stubbornness describes, the, the Hebrew word will describe the attitude of sin. It's the attitude of sin. Rebellion or rebellious describes the action of sin. So the Lord through Moses is, is dealing with both, the attitude and the action, the thought life and the behavior. So think about this first, stubbornness. Stubbornness is the attitude of sin. The word is sorer, 
and it means morally unresponsive. You get that? Morally unresponsive. You could call it a conscience that has been seared. Morally unresponsive. Right and wrong don't matter to this person anymore. Right and wrong are beside the point. Uh, this is someone who is morally numb. They know what's right. They've heard what's right. They're aware of what's right, but they no longer acknowledge it in their thought life, in the plans and schemes of the heart. That's the attitude of sin. I know what's right, but I don't care. I know what I've been told, but I'm not going to do that. Turn in your Bibles, and I want you to go with me here to two passages, actually. Go over to Hebrews chapter 6. Two separate passages. To think this through for just a moment, this idea of stubbornness as an attitude, as, as the way a person acts or, or, or thinks, not acts, but thinks morally numb, morally shutting down the right and the wrong. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. The other passage will be John chapter 10. We'll get there in just a second. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. I love this passage because it's so upsetting to so many of us as Christians. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame for ground that drinks the rain and, and which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being, and there it is, burned, the insatiable fire. Boy, this passage bothers people. Let me ask you a question this morning. How sure are you of your eternal security? How confident are you? Or do you know if you should die this morning, do you know where you're going? Without question. Better hear what Jesus has to say about it. So keep your finger there in Hebrews 6 and flip back a few pages to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And while you're flipping there, I'll give you the lead up to it. Uh, we'll be looking at verse 25 and following, but I'll start in verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Feast of Dedication? Hanukkah. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for Hanukkah. It was winter, verse 23, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him, and they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, <laughs> and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. See, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given to me, he's greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, is Jesus at odds with the Hebrew pastor? The Hebrew pastor says, hey, if you've tasted of this and, and had this experience and all these great things, and then you fall away, you can't be saved. Jesus says, no, 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 no one can snatch you out of my hand. You're safe, you're secure. Security of salvation. Wobbliness of my own sin. Which one is it? By the way, I got to tell you this. I just, I just discovered this. The word snatch in verse 28 and 29 is harpadze. Harpadzo. This is where we get the word harpadzo, harpadzo, which is the word we see for rapture, for being caught up. 
But here it's harpad say, it's slightly different. What it means, this, the root word means to forcefully or forcibly seize. Forcefully or forcibly. Forcefully is, is the experience of being seized, and that's harpazo. That's the rapture of the church. It will be a forceful, instantaneous, no stopping it, seizure, boom, we're gone. And I, I wonder sometimes, what's that going to feel like? I mean, it's a twinkling of an eye, but man, am I going to feel like my stomach's coming right up through my mouth, you know, up we go? We're going to be forcefully pulled out of here, but not forcibly. See, because forcibly implies that your will is being compromised. And that's what Jesus is saying in John 10. Nobody can forcibly pull you out of my hand. Nobody can do that. Nobody has that kind of power, Satan or any other force. No one can seize you from the Father's hand once you've been saved. He's got you. You can put it this way. No one can grab me from the grace of Jesus. Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to live forever? Do you want to live with Jesus and experience all the joy that that encompasses and that is promised there. I was talking to my son Christopher just this last week about this very thing. We were talking about heaven and the afterlife, and, and, and he was saying, yeah, but Dad, he said, so it can happen anytime? I said, yeah, it could happen anytime. It could happen tonight before I even fall asleep. Yeah, it could happen tonight before I fall asleep. And I could see the beads of sweat, you know, and I see Christopher lying there, and he looks at me and he goes, but Dad, what about the purple Lamborghini? This is his dream. Christopher wants a purple Lamborghini. I'm like, good luck with that, son. I'm looking for, if, you, if anyone finds a purple Lamborghini Hot Wheel car, get it. I'll pay you back for it. What about the purple Lamborghini? And I just said, son, son, you need to understand that what heaven describes, or what the Bible describes of heaven and eternal life is so Wonderful, there's not going to be a single person in heaven missing their purple Lamborghini. No one in heaven's going to be looking back at this life going, Oh, but I didn't get to be married. You'd be like, I'm so glad. No one's going to be like, I never got to have children. I never got to raise a family. I never got to move to Hawaii. You'll be like, Who cares? In the presence of Jesus, it will be awesome. And by the way, it's what we're made for. It's what God desires for us. Do you want that? Now, let me ask you this. How many Christians here, don't raise your hands, how many of you can say that at some point in your life you wandered off, you fell down, you turned away, or you slid back from faith? I will raise my hand on that. From the time that I gave my life to Jesus to now, are you kidding me? Backsliding? Falling away? questioning, doubting. What the Hebrew pastor says, does that mean that once that happens, you can't come back? Listen to me very carefully. If it depends on you to get yourself back and to prove yourself, yes, that's what it means. You can't come back. You hear me? If it depends on you, you cannot work your way back. Thank God it doesn't depend on you or me. Praise God that salvation rests, our future rests in Jesus. That, that eternity doesn't depend on us. What, you know what depends on us? Trusting in the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's your part. But what about that Hebrews passage? The Hebrew pastor describes, actually, he, I could put it this way, he over-describes an ultimate situation. He's talking about those who are, again, he says, enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, brain ignited, taste buds excited, spirit invited, belly delighted, future incited. <laughs> he goes to an extreme. He says, if someone is that saved and then they fall away, Listen to the wording. Repentance would be impossible. Repentance would be impossible. Why? Because the heart so saved would have to get so hard that it would never repent. But let me tell you something. 
This is a biblical deterrent. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, that freaks out way too many believers is a biblical deterrent. What's going on here is the Hebrew pastor is saying how absolutely unthinkable and ridiculous it would be for someone so sweetly saved to turn around and spit out that sweet grace. It's not going to happen. And the language, by the way, the Greek language implies this very thing. Uh, Kenneth Wiest says the language indicates that this is a hypothetical case, a straw man. F.F. Bruce, highly respected, regarded New Testament scholar, said in these verses, he's not questioning the perseverance of the saints. Rather, he's insisting that those who persevere are the saints. Are you with me? That this passage in Hebrews 6 is designed to deter such a thing from ever happening. And the reality is for people to fall, the rebellious son, back in Deuteronomy 21, because we're still talking about him, the rebellious son's taste of the heavenly gift and the good word of God, even the Holy Spirit, the problem is it's nothing more than a Costco snack. What do you mean? I mean, he's had a taste. Just enough to know that this is true but not enough to give his life to Jesus. Just enough to know that's probably right, but I'm going to refuse it. I'm not going to buy into it by faith. I'll test the sample, but I'm walking away, and I'm not buying the full Costco box. <laughs> and so the rebellious, the stubborn, we're still dealing with that word stubbornness, that attitude of sin, that stubbornness stubbornly holds on to sin and ends up being a victim of his or her own stubbornness to his or her own sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret unto salvation. But sorrow of the world produces death. The rebellious, sorrowful, the, the stubborn son here. The stubborn child is sorrowful. Now, hear this this morning. If you are capable of repentance, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, if you are capable of repentance today, you're not lost. You're not lost. You're not the stubborn son because the stubborn son is incapable of repentance. His mind won't go there. Now, the twin sibling of stubbornness is rebellion. Stubbornness is the attitude of sin. Rebellion is the action of sin. The word rebellious, more, means recalcitrant. Not a word I use very often, recalcitrant. Sounds like my milk needs more calcium in it, but it's recalcitrant. It means wayward. It means headstrong, intractably disobedient. This is the rebellious son that does not ever obey, can't obey. His mind won't go there. Therefore, his body won't go there either. So sin sick is this person that their actions are filled with sin, sin taken over, and now sin run amok. This is an extreme case. The word rebellion or rebellious, more. Does that sound at all familiar to another Hebrew word? The word mara, same root, more, rebellious, mara, which translates bitter, bitter. Exodus 15, 23, when Israel came to mara, they could not drink the waters of mara for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named mara. I love the naming of these places along their journeys. What do we name this place? Well, the water's bitter. Let's call it bitter. Okay. Remember back when we stopped at bitter? So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now listen. Man, this was convicting for me. The people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Rebellion, which is the outgrowth again of that stubbornness, the, the stubbornness of, of mind and thought now into action. It's a lack of trust that ultimately develops this kind of bitterness that assumes that God is powerless or ignorant of what's going on in my life. Bitterness is assuming that God either is powerless because he's not acting right now. I've been praying, I've been asking, I'm getting no answer. So he must be powerless or ignorant. Let me ask you, Bible students, is God powerless? 
Is God ignorant? Why then don't we trust him? Why would we ever get to a place of bitterness unless we truly were not trusting in him? The Hebrew pastor again says, Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. See, there it is. The root of bitterness in one person can defile the many, which is why the rebellious stubborn son is a community situation. He says, be sure that no immoral person or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a meal. You know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Why? For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. But Esau had the sorrow of the world, lost his birthright, but he was not repentant for having sold it which was the real issue. It's worldly sorrow gone wrong. It's the victim who mourns over messes in life. The person who says, it's just, just so unfair. This wouldn't have happened to me if there was a God. This happened to you because you rejected God. This happened to you because you're running on your own power. This happened to you because of a stubborn, willful heart that then became a rebellious action. Some think that bitterness comes of the result of someone else's wrongs against you. That's why I'm bitter, because he did this or she did that. It's Esau saying, Jacob ripped me off, and so I'm bitter. No, no. The Bible tells us truly that bitterness is rooted in rebellion without repentance. Bitterness is rooted in rebellion without repentance. If you suffer from bitterness... This morning, if, if you're listening to me and you know, man, I've got, I've got a bitter heart. I feel bitter toward life for what's happened to me and toward family for what they've done to me and toward others for how they've affected me. Listen, if you feel like people or life has been unfair to you, your bitterness is against God because you're assuming him powerless or ignorant in your life. So I gently encourage you, if you happen to be in that place this morning, repent. Which is not something you would think someone suffering in a bitter state wants to hear. Repent, how dare you? Listen, repentance is the only way to relieve the bitterness. 2 Corinthians 7.10, again, the sorrow that's according to God produces a repentance without regret to salvation. It's repentance because you're bitter because you're not turning to God. You're turning inward to self or turning against others, which ultimately is against him and unable to affect any change in my life. So repent, turn to him, let him produce that salvation in you, in your heart once again because the sorrow of the world just produces death. Again, the bitter person would say, me repent, I was the one hurt. I was the one taken advantage of. Me repent, uh, that's not fair. And that's the cry of the bitter heart. It's not fair. And again, let me underscore this, it denies God's involvement to be working something in your life. I'm not saying that your life hasn't gone wrong. I'm not saying that you haven't had a difficult, hard road or that hasn't been marked with struggles throughout. What I'm saying is, do you think maybe God knows? And if he knows you have a choice to turn against him or to accept that he is working in you for the kind of sanctification that he desires for you, which, by the way, is perfect. It's perfect. It may be painful now, but in the life to come, to be able to look back and say, wow, God loved me so much. He was willing to take me through that to get me to this. That washes away bitterness. Then you start to realize, for the pain that I've had to go through, my father gets it. My father knows. My father's with me. By the way, is there any hope for the bitterly rebellious son back in Deuteronomy 21. You may be wondering, is there any hope we're ever going to get back to Deuteronomy 21? Well, let's go back there for a second here and finish up. Is there any hope for the bitterly rebellious son? And the answer is yes. Don't miss how much had to happen 
before the final execution could take place. This is not a crime of passion. This is not an instantaneous, if your son or daughter's rebelling, kill them. No, if this rebellion is completely out of control, God weaves time into this law for what? For repentance. From the mother and father chastising to ultimately there's no other hope but bringing him to the elders of the city. Now he's with the community and they're all saying, come on, you can change this. This does not have to end this way. Ultimately to the final stoning where all the men of the city are lined up picking up stones. There's time woven in for the bitter, rebellious, stubborn son to repent. Do you remember what happened at Mara? The waters of bitterness? God did something that no one could have anticipated. Exodus 15, 25 says, the Lord showed Moses a tree and he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. A tree. Which brings us to a profound prophecy connected to the law of the stubborn, rebellious son, Deuteronomy 21, 22. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is, to, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. By the way, it's because of this law that Jews bury the same day of the death. But that's, that's Jewish custom, not to wait, but to uh, burial, or at least interment needs to happen as quickly as possible. You shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Listen, context is everything. And there is a reason why these two verses are placed right here, immediately following the law of the rebellious, stubborn son. The only thing that makes these verses placed here make any sense at all is the cursed son of Israel, the one who was executed. I told you there was one when we started, that this law was never used in Israel with one exception, Jesus, the cursed son. Now you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, this law is about the stubborn, rebellious son. That's not Jesus. Oh, yes, it is Jesus who took on every ounce of your stubbornness and mine, the rebellion of sin in the world, he wore that. He became the rebellious son, though he himself had never rebelled. He became the stubborn son, though he himself was never stubborn. He took it all on himself and became the cursed son and was executed over in Galatians chapter 3. Turn there and that's where we're going to end. Galatians chapter 3 where Paul picks up on this whole idea of the cursed son. And, and he, he explains it and expresses it in such a profound way. Galatians chapter 3 in your Bibles, verse 13. Galatians three thirteen. Paul writes, and if you're not there, get there. <laughs> Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took all the stubborn rebelliousness of the world, of all of us, deserving of death, he took it on himself. But you need to understand something, that according to Torah law and, and according to the practice of Jewish Hebrew execution, hanging on a tree was never the method of execution in Israel. It's not the method of execution. Usually the method of execution was stoning. As we see with the rebellious son, you take him outside the city and you stone him. But here's the deal. Hanging on a tree is something else. Even the way the law is worded, I'll read it to you again. He says that there it is. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. Doesn't say and he's put to death by being hung on a tree. It says he's put to death and you hang him on a tree. It's two separate things. 
well, that's weird. No, it's actually, it, it was done. They never hung people as with a noose. They didn't crucify. In fact, crucifixion didn't even come along, wasn't even invented until seven or eight centuries after, actually longer than that, almost a thousand years after this prophecy was given. Crucifixion was then invented. This is not about crucifixion. And it's not about being hung and dying and that being the method of execution. Hanging on a tree was only done after a death or execution as a curse of the body. The body executed would be taken out in a, an extreme situation and hung on a tree for everybody to see. And it was a curse. And that was, by the way, not only practiced in Israel, but practiced in the ancient world. It would hang the body up, the dead body, to show the community that this is how bad it got. And as a, a curse to that body itself. Keep that in mind. When sin entered the world, God said to Adam, Genesis 3, 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. That was a curse. The only crown that the cursed Jesus wore in his first coming was made of thorns of the cursed earth. He died a cursed man. Listen, the law then came along and amplified the curse even more. In fact, in Galatians 3, back in verse 10, Paul says, as many are, as are of the works of the law are under a curse. That is, if you're a law keeper, you're living by the law, you want to be judged by your deeds, by the things that you do, you're under a curse. Why? For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you want to live by the law, you can't miss a single note. You can't miss a single thing in the law. You got to keep every aspect of it perfectly. And you can't. So the law itself becomes a curse. Paul says, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. He says, for the righteous man shall live by faith. It's faith that saves. However, he says, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law is about behavior. It is not about trusting God. Now you can back it out and you can say, I trust God, therefore I want to walk by his law, that's fine. But if you're keeping the law to prove yourself to God so you don't have to trust God, it will never work. It will only curse you. And then Paul goes on to explain what really took place at the cross. This is what you gotta get this morning. Verse 13 again, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here's the deal. Jesus not only took the punishment of our sin in his death, he took the curse of the law in his death. So he died taking the punishment and he was hung on a tree taking the curse. He consumed, assumed both and literally became the cursed son on a tree. But remarkably, the words of the cursed son were not bitter, railing, angry, accusatory, or condemning. The words of the cursed son as he hung on the tree, you know them, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Let's stand together. When Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, it must have been shocking in light of this law because the prodigal son describes a stubborn, rebellious son. That's where he starts. Now, we don't get that because we're not thinking Jewish law, but a good Jewish boy or girl having grown up studying Torah and hearing the prodigal son parable for the first time would go, 
The stubborn, rebellious son runs away, squanders everything, ends up in a pig pen, comes back, and his father receives him? That's not what the law says. That's because the law yields the curse. The son deserves stoning. He got his father's love and acceptance instead. And the only way Jesus could have told that parable when he did, that picture of the father's heart, was that he knew that he himself would soon become the stubborn, rebellious, cursed son on the tree. He would do that. And he then became for us the only way back to the father's arms. Will you come to God through him? you're struggling with bitterness, a difficult, hard road, then I invite you this morning to repent, to turn to God, and to affirm once again, he does know what's going on in my life. He does have a plan in all of this. And I invite you, if you've never received Jesus, to come and ask him to remove the stubbornness, (laughs) the thing that's been keeping him at arm's length from you, the rebellion, if it is there, the bitterness of sin, Come give it to him once and for all. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord Jesus, when we take the time to recognize what it is you've done, how much you accomplished at the cross of Calvary, it's overwhelming. It is truly an awesome thing. And this morning, I want to thank you. And I want to ask you to convict us of heart and of mind Lord, maybe, maybe we haven't acted in rebellion, but our thoughts have been stubborn. And I, I pray, Spirit of the living God, would you break through the stubbornness of our thinking and the stubbornness of our hearts. Stop us before rebellion takes place and draw us to yourself. I pray that this morning there will be a drawing, whether this service or the next, there will be a drawing to you And Lord, for me, it doesn't matter if it's a drawing by people coming forward or a drawing just in the heart. But I ask, Lord, that you would just be at work among us and draw us near to you to trust you even more today than we ever have before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.